This episode is brought to you by Naoki Takahashi, a Japanese restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And welcome to Why Food Podcast, the podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and creatives who have left a former career to pursue lives in the food, beverage, and hospitality industry. I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. Today, we're joined by Mohammed Moderis, who is the founder of Abe's Meats, uh, the only halal and kosher meat company in the U.S. Please join us. Yes, yes. Salam, shalom. What's up? Yeah. How's <laughs> all, it going, guys? All the things. All of the yeah. things. Um, so, so what's, what's the story? Why, why are you the only halal and kosher meat company in the country? Oh boy. Uh, yeah, it, it, it started, the idea came about after, uh, the election cycle, the last election cycle, um, the type of, of rhetoric that was coming out against, um, Muslims, Jews, felt like everyone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and I had, at that time, a history in Northern California of just hosting uh, different types of charity events. And I wanted to uh, bring my Muslim friends, my Jewish friends together, really everyone, um, to have an interfaith dinner. And uh, then I began, I began having uh, conversations with uh, different people who wanted to come. And, you know, they asked me about kosher uh, dietary laws and, and halal uh, needs. And that's when I you know, got into this world. And I thought to have the most inclusive uh, dinner table, you know, I have to respect everyone's religious dietary laws. Sure enough, um, that took me on uh, a, <laughs> a kind of a long-winded way of hosting our first Shabbat Salam dinner uh, a few months after. Uh, and it was because I wanted to go to different religious leaders and food experts asking them if I can bring the whole on kosher process together because having both, uh, respecting both, but having them separate, I felt was uh, just not only, you know, odd, but uh, really expensive uh, and logistically just not possible for, you know, the, the type of space that I had. Um, and I was just also really curious. I mean, this was, this was something to me that, uh, you know, I, uh, I thought it, it should change. Um, so it was, it was fun. I mean, I, I just went up and down the Pacific coast and, uh, sure enough, uh, ended up meeting a shochet who is a, uh, a Jewish um, uh, leader who oversees the kosher process uh, and it brought on his, his Muslim equivalent and we produced um, what we called interfaith meat that day. And um, yeah, since then we've been offering it at our Shabbat Salam dinners around the country. So can we do a quick uh, debrief on the, I know there's a, there's a lot of um, laws that go into both kosher and halal. Yeah. So can we do a quick uh discussion on what that entails and who you have to get involved. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of times, uh, kosher is, well, we'll start with kosher. Kosher, um, is followed by the Jewish community. It requires, uh, for meat production, for dairy, for, for par, you know, each class has its own thing. And for myself, considering where we do meat production, it means, um, from start to finish, having oversight by a Jewish leader who follows a certain uh, certain steps. Um, for the meat production itself, it means a shochet is involved. They do a horizontal cut on the animal. Um, in, the, in the case of if it's large production, um, there's something that's, that's said. It could be said one time. Um, and uh, then afterwards to follow glut kosher, which is a little bit more orthodox, they then have to open up the animal and make sure that it's, uh, there's no lesions on the lungs, that the animal hasn't been abused in any way, um, that the health of, of, of the animal is, is, is adequate. And in the production process, it's actually done next to when I've gone to these facilities, it's, it's gone, it's done with uh, USDA oversight. And so you know, after the sacrifice of the animal, um, after the animals uh, broken down, they, you know, look through different parts of the animal and they say, all right, this, this gets that stamp. Um, and 
it's uh, it you know it follows through this process. Um, I actually now over over this last year and a half of of seeing all of this, I very much respect um, the thought uh, uh, process and and just the 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 focus to detail um, that Glut Kosher has. Now, in regards to its uh, relationship with the actual faith based dietary laws, you know, a lot of it is. Uh, people go back and forth uh, regarding the interpretation of it. So glut kosher is actually fairly new. It's, it's you know, roughly uh, been in practice for, for less than 200 years. Um, and so when we talk about kosher itself, or uh, the laws of kashrut, um, that's, that's a little bit older. And those, uh, those steps are uh, less. I mean, it, it, in these, uh, um, you know, religious... Um, laws or, or even the oral teachings, it talks about the types of animals you can't consume, but it doesn't go into the details of the actual food production. So these are things that have uh, developed over time, uh, culturally, uh, for hygiene purposes, uh, for cultural purposes, um, and, uh, and even to a certain extent uh, within the Jewish and Muslim community to create a sense of, you know, this is our way of doing it and attaching it to uh, to the cultural and traditional values of of particular societies, which as as people as as humans we do that all the time, right? Um, I mean, you know, we the history of I don't know any type of cuisine we bring it back to the origins mm-hmm. of its country and its people. Um, so that I, I found that incredibly fascinating, and then kind of going and, and seeing how halal does it. Um, but one thing that as I stepped more and more into this world, um, what I wanted to make sure that I did was uh, be true to my understanding of public health and environmental health. And uh, what I mean by that is kosher certification, halal certification, you could go and produce meat in a factory farm uh, facility from an industrialized, you know, uh, with an industrialized mindset and still get a religious certification. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a disconnect there between, um, you know, the, 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 the old way of thinking to now the new way of thinking to just how the market's also evolving. I think fortunately now customers um, are, you know, are wanting better quality food. And so as a result, you know, you have that, you have these different types of ecosystems opening up and, and wanting to, to, to service these communities. And I expect that the faith-based communities will follow that. And it's, and it's exciting to see that, but still from a religious standpoint or from, from religious certification standpoint, excuse me, there isn't a particular, you know, uh, added steps or what have you. And so for us, I was like, all right, like, you know, I already have a particular relationship with meat. I'm, I'm a flexitarian. I don't, I don't go and, you know, consume it all the time or what have you. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to be conscious of uh, going down this step and making sure that we're a food brand. Um, really, we're an interfaith organization that that is using food as a tool to promote um, inclusivity to promote cultural understanding, uh, between the Muslim and Jewish world. And in this case, it happened, it evolved to now become what we know as interfaith meat. And so our first step was, okay, you know, let's take into consideration regenerative agriculture. Let's apply that into this process. Let's make sure that the cattle we bring on, um, uh, to produce as meat, that they're grass-fed, but not only are they grass-fed, they're grass-finished, um, that they have lived in humane conditions until they reach the facility, and when they reach the facility, that it's sacrificed in an appropriate way. Um, and within the Muslim-Jewish community, there's even there's a lot of controversy around stunning or not. We don't do stunning um, because that's what's accepted within uh, uh, you know the most... Uh, uh, how should I say this? Like the Muslim Jewish communities, that's what they can agree on. Um, and then even afterwards, the packaging process, uh, the fulfillment process that it's done with oversight that's appropriate, which includes salting and, you know, making sure that different fats and, and um, uh, veins and whatnot are taken out. So it's, uh, it's kind of a, a long supply chain 
Um, but we, we want to follow the most orthodox forms of both faiths so that it becomes a common denominator. And that's where kind of the term came of, of uh, interfaith meat. Were there slaughterhouses already set up to do this work to begin with, or, or did you have to convince them? What was, the, what was the process like when you went into a slaughterhouse and said, I want this to be certified in both faiths? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how did you make that happen? Yeah, there's already um, facilities that have uh, applied uh, kosher standards. Um, and so, for example, the one that we work with in Maryland they were more than happy to to comply with the with the steps that we wanted to apply the whole process um, with kosher because they're considering how the meat industry is is going like they want to make sure that they uh, I mean it's it's a facility they want business right and um, and so if they can bring in now uh, the needs of the Muslim community which is uh, you know halal dietary requirements which have grown about a third since 2010. Halal is now very, from a meat standpoint, uh, meat production standpoint, it's now fairly comparable to, to kosher. Um, kosher kosher uh, uh, certification is, is, is much bigger than halal right now in the United States, um, but that will likely change because of just the rising immigrant uh, Muslim community and just the Muslim diaspora um, and also the the level of of faith and interest in these dietary laws. You have more of the Jewish community in this country becoming secular, um, and those who apply, you know, kosher requirements. Uh, a lot of it becoming cultural, and um, so in this case, this facility was just like, oh, this is this is cool, but didn't really go into it. Yeah, there's like, okay, so so you know, you're gonna give me uh, the 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 Muslim community involved. Great. And um, really uh, wonderful people um, at this uh, uh, facility up in Maryland. Um, the truths, they do great work. Um, you also and- mentioned that, uh, earlier at lunch that um, there's a lot of waste reduction by being able to carry out this process For simultaneously. Sure. Can For you talk sure. about that? Yeah, I mean, with... so. Kosher is, is very strict, the, especially the glut kosher process, and only the front half of an animal is, uh, is kosher. It's from the 13th rib up, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. And um, so the back hind, because of a, of a particular vein that goes, uh, deems the, the back hind of the animal not kosher. Now, there are certain kosher certifiers um, uh, I believe m- most of them are Sephardic that will say like, look, that back hind is, is okay. But if you want it to be done this way, excuse me, the, 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 this vein has to be taken out, etc., And that becomes very, uh, time intensive, time intensive and just labor intensive for, uh, for any, any, you know, meat company. And in our case, um, the beauty of it is that that front, uh, half of the animal um, is halal and kosher, becomes uh, uh, glut kosher and zabia halal, the most orthodox forms of it. But that back hind now doesn't go to waste either because it's still zabia halal. Uh, for Muslims, that particular dietary law just doesn't comply. Um, for Muslims, the, the importance of making sure that the animal is raised properly is, is of, of great concern. Um, and then, of course, for both faiths, making sure that there is as less, uh, as at least a uh, possible amount of blood as possible for, for, the, for the animal. So that's where the salting process comes in, which it's very fascinating to me because as a Muslim, I had never been part of the salting process and now I'm just like well Muslims should be doing that too but it makes sense that they did that they don't because when you think about all of these steps it's from it's from a long time ago I mean the reason why the salting happens is also because of refrigeration mm-hmm, you know it's, it's not necessarily like this is what God said this is because of you know just the infrastructure uh, that existed um, so you know, it's it's nice to see that. It's nice to see that 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 you know part of it continues, um, and uh, uh, but yeah, for for myself, it's just making sure that from the from start to finish, 
that we make sure that the supply chain not only follows the religious dietary laws, but also follows uh, an ecological uh, perspective that I hope will begin to become more and more popular within these religious communities. Um, and it, it's it's definitely a a, uh, a topic of discussion. I know um, Hazan, uh, not, uh, an organization, a Jewish organization, uh, recently um, gave some grants to different types of, of Jewish food uh, companies to begin thinking more this way and, and producing food in this manner. Um, so, you know, they're, they're definitely thinking about it and applying it in, in different ways, um, which, which is great to, great to hear and great to see. Um, but, you, uh, yeah. Can you also walk us through a little bit about ne- now that you've gone through what is a pretty rigorous function and processes, the actual certification. So you're kosher certified yeah. uh, and you're going to be halal certified. Is that different? Um, how is it different from an organic label or, you know, the other things that you might see yeah. on your meat? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious for the organic label process because for... Uh, for kosher, um, I, I would say the largest certifiers, first of all, are OU. If you look on, you know, 40% of your products today, just I'm sure you can you can go to your kitchen and grab something and, you know, look on the label. You'll probably find an OU label, which is Orthodox Union, or um, Star K, uh, which is a K inside a, inside a star. And um, they require oversight uh, across the process. Um, and as a result, you know, especially if you're doing glut kosher, it becomes fairly expensive. Um, each of these certifications, uh, not even just for meat, but generally for products, it could run you upwards of, you know, five, six thousand dollars a skew, uh, which wow. is, which is, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> for a, especially for a small new company. A small new company, yeah. And um, so now there are some that uh, will go and team up with others. Um, you know, and work with each other and bring on a shochet and divide that cost and whatnot, especially if there's very low production. Um, Within this facility, uh, this particular facility is interesting because it not only has uh, Star K representatives, but also OU representatives. And, um, (laughs) you know, as you can imagine within any... I mean, they're. Do they, they're, they, do they fight? Get into debates about <laughs> the, the right way to do it. They come on different days <laughs> and they, they respect each other's process. And, um, That's very diplomatic. <laughs> very diplomatic, yes. Um, and uh, they, you know, they have, they have yeah, they just they, they have their own ways. And um, within halal certification, halal, because it's not, their infrastructure is not built. Uh, as you know, as well as koshers in the United States, globally, that's a completely different matter. I mean, globally, there's, there's, you know, uh, now close to like two billion Muslims, and nowhere near as many uh, Jews around the world. So the whole infrastructure in places like Malaysia, in places like the Middle East, I mean, it's. Um, it's pretty pretty grand. But when, uh, when I lived in Afghanistan, we used to there used to be halal chickens raised and killed in Brazil and frozen mm. and shipped. You'd go to the supermarket yeah. in Kabul and you would buy halal chickens that were that were imported from yeah. Brazil into Afghanistan. That, Why didn't they just kill their own chicken? Well, th- I mean, you could if you wanted to kill your own chicken and you could, but but if you were getting this the kind of industrial meat yeah. uh, uh. supply chain for whatever reason, <laughs> they were being slaughtered in Brazil and frozen and shipped to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. and Brazil is actually the number one exporter of halal meat. Really? Um, which is crazy do they have a um, large muslim population no it's just this is this is business for for the beef industry that does um or i should just say in general uh, you know animal-based meats in brazil um but another fun fact there's over two thousand kosher facilities in china really you know, not just um, we're not talking about meat but like even spices and you yeah. know different types of ingredients and whatnot um so kosher halal it's it's not just you know a stamp. There's there's a immense um, investment and in infrastructure behind it. Uh, in the United States, uh, roughly forty percent of, of foods are kosher, uh, CPGs are, are kosher, and it goes beyond just the the Jewish population. I mean, it's, the Jewish population in America is, is roughly one percent. So for forty percent of foods to be labeled as such is uh, 
you know, you, you would think mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense. But um, but I, now uh, kosher is also seen as a label that accounts for, you know, more. Um, it's seen as an extra pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, Quality. Of, yeah, it, it, it stands for now. This is this is, you know, it stands for this, whether or not it is that that's that's a completely different discussion. It's based on the company. It's based on a lot of other stuff. But um, then it brings up that conversation again of the relationship with the environment, because uh, is it more, you know, ecological to to or is it more economically viable to ship that piece of meat from Brazil to Afghanistan Sure, because of the infrastructure that, you know, the, the meat production process in Afghanistan. But is it more ecologically viable? Now we can, you know, have a conversation of where we want the kosher community, the, the, the halal community, excuse me, certifications to go into. And I know there's there's some, uh, uh, you know, uh, kosher certifiers that are uh, applying that more and more. I think there's one called Earth Kosher. Um and that's, you know, uh, becoming more of an interest to, to people who, who uh, comply with kosher laws. Um, and within the Muslim community, it's still, I would say, regional. Um, so you have different certifiers who have a bigger presence, maybe in Chicago or, or in California or New York or what have you. Um, but applying that uh, aspect or that perspective of the environment um, you know, I look forward to to working with certifiers and, and making sure that that's that's applied. For us, whether or not it's certif- certified or you know not, it's that's just such a big you know component to our organization. Have you come across other tensions either between the halal and kosher, either your customer bases or or communities at large, um, judgments or yeah. or issues that they feel like are not being met what yeah. are there tensions between kosher and halal and then are there internal tensions on the halal side i would i would say the biggest tension within halal is actually this environmental uh, perspective more people are now just deciding to eat grass fed maybe even grass fed grass finished versus going after halal meat because they're realizing that this factory farm approach it has caused it to just, I mean, not only be damaging for the environment, but also offer low quality food. Um, and uh, so the the conversations that I'm having, um, you know, is like, this is a very quick way of you separating yourself from, from the competition that exists. I mean, it's very, it's very daunting actually for us. Uh, we're, we're a very, very small company, but that said, because of the fact that like from day one, we decided to follow regenerative agriculture. Now there's, there's an interest of like, okay, this is not only halal based on, you know, label, but this is halal based on this approach, which was, which wasn't, and still, you know, is very important within um, within anybody who wants to follow this this dietary law for especially for Muslims. And you've you've also had some issues uh, personally, yeah, right? Like, what, absolutely. What, what, I mean, what are some of the reactions that you've gotten based you know, on your background? It's just uh, as a as an Iranian Muslim, you know, I've I've been in the pursuit of of getting halal certification and. Um, you know, because it's regional so far, of course, there's there are big names out there and, and they're doing a, a great job becoming more and more of a national provider. But I wanted my certifier uh, and oversight to be close to me. So I contacted a uh, New York um, halal certifier and, you know, we built qu- quite a, a long relationship. I mean, it was a couple of four or five months of just chatting and talking about just what it, what it all means, um, and why we're doing the things that we're doing, why our focus is on the on the environment so much, and um, and th- this person who I you know had built this relationship with also had the same name as as one of my Iranian friends, and uh, just this one day you know he calls me up and I'm thinking it's my Iranian friend. I pick up the phone and I just start talking to him in Persian, laughing and joking a little bit. And uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize it was you know whatnot. Um, and we go back to talking about you know the certification process and um, what I need to do to have one of his colleagues there at our facility. And then at the end of the conversation, brings it back up. It's like, hey, I'm am just curious. Um, and it, you know, Iranians predominantly are uh, most of them are Shia Muslim, 
and um, and Shias are they're roughly 10, 12 percent of the of the global Muslim population. Majority are Sunni Muslims. I grew up in an environment where you know my friends were Jewish, Muslim. We we didn't we didn't even when we said Muslim, we never even said Sunni or Shia, what have you. Um, but for him, apparently, this this had of significant value, despite the fact that for months before he had uh, not only um, agreed with me on the steps that we had taken, but commended me for, you know, the, the ecological components and the, even the economic uh, components, because we're purchasing from local farmers, ranchers, etc. And, uh, and so his, you know, he's curious, he's at, and he asked me, are you Shia or are you a uh, Muslim? And um, there was no modifier to the latter Muslim, <laughs> I see. And uh, so, you know, to, to denounce a denomination uh, and uh, to cause, to, to put that in front of everything that we've done, it, it was surprising to me. Um, and I, I never even, you know, he, he still doesn't know, right? There's a, there, he didn't get an answer to his question, um, but just respectfully, uh, you know, just said, you know, have a nice day and all that good stuff. And, um, have you experienced that before ever? Well, I mean, there is, the thing is within, sure. I mean, I've experienced different types of discrimination, um, within Islam or just as a Muslim in America. I mean, that's how this kind of all started to a certain respect, you know, I, post nine 11, how I felt as a kid, um, you know, seeing the environment that changed. I, I was, I grew up in the tri-state area. So, um, you know, being in New Jersey, being in a suburb in New Jersey, uh, and then how people reacted, uh, to any Muslim in that environment. I mean, my, like I, I was, uh, physically, you know, assaulted, but not only that, my, my mother was punched in a mall, uh, after nine eleven, And so like, you know, you kind of, that's in the back of your mind and fast forward to the election cycle um after the 2016 elections when uh this this type of narrative is built around muslims around jews um it was it didn't take much for me to be like all right now i'm i'm an adult let me try to figure out how to how to do something here mm-hmm. i didn't know what i didn't know i was going to go into halal kosher foods <laughs> but um i thought all right let me organize an interfaith dinner and um, bring my muslim and jewish friends together and let's talk about this let's see what we can uh what we can do what we can put into action um how to how to measure this bigotry how to combat this bigotry and uh then yeah, having to put that Shabbat Salam dinner on hold to run around and see if we can make interfaith meet, and then that's that's how this all started. And sure enough, like having the dinners now, it's it's really the, the meat does become to a certain extent the centerpiece because when people realize that oh wait a second, like kosher and halal can come together. So like what else if we look back through our history can we merge to to celebrate our you know our identities. And, um, it's, 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 it's kind of cool. Cause then like we went into, um, you know, uh, just merging different stuff and that's kind of what interfaith ventures is, you know, it's it, at the end of the day, it's kind of like an incubator to create these products and programs for, uh, for promoting interfaith unity. Um, and Abe's meets, we see that as like underneath that umbrella. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes with Mohammed Madaris and we're going to go through some of the the interesting and complicated career shifts that he's made (laughs) to get to this point. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Naoki Takahashi, a restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. When you dine at Naoki Takahashi, you'll feel like you've been transported to Japan. Sample a little bit of everything with kaiseki menus, or let Chef Naoki lead the way with his omakase menu. A la carte and vegetarian dishes are also available. Learn more at naokitakahashi.com. That's N-A-O-K-I-T-A-K-A-H-A-S-H-I.com. 
Listening to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, career changers, creatives. I feel like every time we give this description, we add, <laughs> it's a little we, we add a new category to the list. Anybody who did anything and now works in food. Um, we're here with Mohammed Madaris, who's the uh, founder of Abe's Meats, the country's first and only, only, is that right? <laughs> only uh, kosher and halal meat company. Um, the first half of the podcast, we talked a lot about uh, the, the kosher and halal certifications and some of the processes and politics. And, and changing trends around that. So in the second half, we're going to pivot a little bit and talk more about your your career, your your personal story, and, and all of the experiences that have led you to this point. Yeah. Because you have um, a bit of a political background as well. <laughs> so yeah, tell us tell us about your. Uh, You've, you've had like 12 mini careers, so <laughs> so let's run through them. Tell us about your uh, career as a political cartoonist. Yeah, it, it started off, uh, I was I was very young. I was in elementary school. Um, <laughs> so the normal time that people you start, know, yeah, start we're, careers. We're, we're, we're chasing that paper as a six-year-old now. Um, but uh, yeah, just, just started... Um, started just drawing, started illustrating. And I mean, I, it, it's maybe important to say that my parents were also, uh, being of, of a Persian background, Iranian background, maybe actually an, another side note, I'm just gonna go into multiple side notes here. <laughs> um, my, my last name, Madaris, means actually teacher. And um, we actually have 42 generations of teachers. Oh, in, wow. In the only reason why we know that is because teachers would record uh, that information. And um, so within our family, there was this, this respect for not only just science and mathematics and ultimately becoming a doctor and engineer lawyer, you know, like that whole, con- uh, that whole conversation, um, with, which I, I know a lot of Asian communities have, but then also this respect for poetry and the arts. Uh, so I was always, you know, encouraged to uh, express myself uh, using anything that I had, uh, as long as I had, you know, uh, nothing short of an A <laughs> in, in, in math class or whatnot. Um, so yeah, I started illustrating when I was in, in elementary school, and sure enough, I had some great teachers along the way who would push me to to throw some stuff into competitions and whatnot, and. Sure enough, the when I realized that oh I can win these competitions, um, uh, and at the same time, you know, beginning to read more than just the cartoon section of a newspaper, uh, I wanted to express, you know, the concerns that I had about the environment or about a political situation or about you know anything that I found as unjust, and. Um, so one of the illustrations was about you know 9/11, or one was about the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. Very, pretty heavy stuff. Um, but at the same time, I would draw stuff about you know don't cut trees, um, or in the case of this poster that got me, you know a, a year's worth of toilet paper was <laughs> don't cut down trees please. And um, it, it yeah it just led into this this world that I didn't know didn't know existed. Until I started publishing, you know, even for Newsweek and ultimately for New York Times, which was a great honor, um, but also just giving me a visual, like a higher level of visual literacy as I got older to appreciate and to understand and, and critically think about what not just other illustrators are trying to say, but then what other writers and, and, and different types of artists are trying to express with their work. And how old were you when the New York Times published your cartoon? I was about 11. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, um, the 9-11 piece was was pretty powerful. Um, it got published on, on September 13th. And, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of, you know, at that time, mail or email <laughs> um, would, would uh, come at me and... Um, some that were just you know great piece. Others that were like you know I've I've ripped it from the from the uh, paper and I have it on my refrigerator wow. and it's helped me recover over the years. And this type of mail actually it continues to come, which is crazy. But um, but it, now it comes roughly every year around the anniversary. And um, you know it I I felt especially after the 
creating that piece that it was this was obviously something beyond myself this was beyond my my, my perspective and whatnot this needs to be given to to the community at large and um so sure enough i mean there were opportunities to to sell the piece to you know sell the the, the rights and whatnot um from and those offers were made by by newspapers and and, and whatnot that i just uh, it, it didn't make me feel good. And so ultimately, um, I donated it to different collections. It kind of like moved around to different collections and um, was most recently donated to actually the, the 9-11 Museum, which was, um, I think, the right place to, to, to leave it at that. Um, um, what compelled you? I mean, kids draw, that's fairly common, but, but to first of all, take on a, a topic as political and intense and especially to do it in the day you must have drawn that the day after 9-11 for yeah. it to be then in the paper by the 13th mm-hmm. um what compelled you to to deal with such a an intense topic and to do it so uh, so quickly yeah at that time uh just drawing was, was my way of of expressing everything um i wasn't particularly good at uh speaking i don't think i am serious <laughs> still um you know and now now i do a lot more writing than than i do illustrating um but yeah at that time that's that's what i that's what i was doing i would do when i when i had roughly around the same time i also did um a piece around columbine and and that actually won me a stereo system by Panasonic. <laughs> um, Something but, a little backwards about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very weird. Uh, it was a competition that was sponsored by Panasonic and I think Star Ledger at the time. And um, yeah, sure enough, Panasonic thought, "Here you go, kid." That, that's the perfect um, a response. six yeah. CD changer, <laughs> like boombox. Um, never used it, uh, but. It, yeah, that, that's just, that's how I would express myself. And it was, and, you know, growing up, having the opportunity to do that, because I realized, especially at that age, there there were kids around me who wanted to say a lot of the things that I were saying, but they just didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know... You, for uh, nowadays, I mean, gosh, these uh, now I feel very old saying this, but like kids these days, you know, they they seem to really know how to express themselves. And uh, it, a lot of the kids that I saw them at the most recent march, I mean, incredible. But the kids around me, I don't know, maybe this is uh, uh we're just, just, uh, just in New Jersey, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. is just New Jersey, right? Um, but having the luxury to do that was just was was great. And you eventually parlayed this into a nonprofit as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the the first nonprofit that uh, that I started was it was called the Peace Project, um, and it was based around actually after the nine eleven drawing came out, there was a young lady who uh, turned it into T-shirts, and I thought, okay, well, you know, if if you can do that, I'm sure I can turn these illustrations that I produce into into different types of products and whatever is sold, we can give it back to, you know, different causes that, that we believe in. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's how it began. And so it was kind of like, if it actually first started off, it's just like the type of artwork that I was producing, excuse me. And, um, this pizza was so good, but it's also just like, <laughs> we <laughs> had still some pizza trying to process the show, it. As always. Um, but, uh, but after that, it actually turned into more of a fair trade organization. We were um, exporting products from Peru, uh, thanks to the help of the Peruvian Medical Society. We were exporting products from South Africa and selling them on our little e-commerce store at the time. Um, gosh, when was this? This was back when Apple used to have their own type of like Squarespace or like their own type of Wix. What? I, 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 don't I think it was this. called like the the i it was, it was i something of course right um but they used to have their own little website builder and so that was like our first little like e-commerce platform and we'd sell these earrings from peru on there and like bracelets and whatnot and most of the sales would happen during thanksgiving and christmas you know and you were um, toms before toms <laughs> <laughs> um shout out to toms i, I actually remember meeting kyle for the first time like you know in awe back in i think it was 2008 um cool guy and uh but yeah it was it was just you know that that kind of unfolded um and that's when i started learning more and more about um you know social entrepreneurship i didn't know 
that that's what it was called. I didn't know that there was, a, I just thought that this was volunteering because nobody was making money. on it. So, <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I got into college, uh, uh, and in Baltimore, uh, Ashoka, which sponsors like social entrepreneurs and whatnot around the world. Um, and they also coined the term social entrepreneurship. That's when I was like, Oh wow, this is what it's called. This is what, you know, you just do. Um, you know, you take these business applications, you, you, you put it into, you know, uh, for a social purpose to create a social enterprise. And um, so th- those were the early days of, of kind of thinking about those things. And that's why ultimately all these, you know, uh, methods and, and, and philosophies have a place with Abe's Meats, but also just with a lot of businesses coming out that you guys, I'm sure, have, have a lot of entrepreneurs that you've spoken to, including your own work. Right? I guess so. Yeah. Um, and then, so then you went into public health. Right. Tell us I about say, that. I say that public health. Group, that group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in um, so I actually um, because of I wanted to be an architect growing up. Um, I just thought that that was the best fil- fit because you know, I was I was fairly good at math. And, you know, I was, I was like, all right, I'm I'm drawing different stuff. People seem to like it, whatnot. And also in the back of my mind, my father always wanted to be an architect. And then the revolution happened in, uh, in 1979 in Iran. And um, when he had to leave and he came to the States and the struggles of, of you know, uh, just everything that, you know, uh, an immigrant would, would go through, he wasn't able to, um, you know, finish his, his degree and become that. And so I kind of, and, you know, I had that, just like, yeah. I'm going to do it for you, Dad. <laughs> um, but I realized by the end of high school that everything that I really wanted as a future architect was in public health. And what I mean by that is from, you know, lead and paint to uh, creating and designing a space that is accessible for uh, people who may have any you know, form of, of uh, uh, inability or um, to, you know, the, the urban planning of, of large architectural uh, you know, productions, you know, these things were just, I was like, all right, like maybe this is what I need to study. So uh, I ended up uh, going to Hopkins, um, four years of grad school, I like to call it. And uh, it was, it was fun. It was challenging. Um, I was lucky enough to really explore outside of the campus. A lot of times a college campus can be a bubble. Uh, and that's when I started just really applying and really understanding and then trying to apply um, a lot of the issues that were that were already in Baltimore. Um, but somehow you end up going international with public health a lot of times. I think that that's just the, the what, would you, what would you call it, like kind of the... Um, there's a certain glow to doing work abroad. You know, it's it's a new space. It feels it's, like the problems are easier to solve when they're somebody else's problem. And yeah. You don't you know, understand the and complexity. And exactly. The you're and, a kid. You're trying to, um, you know. And actually, funny enough, my when I was um, in my second year, uh, I was like, all right, I want to do some type of study abroad. Like, this is just... And I have an older sister and... You know, she traveled abroad during her college years, and I was just so much in, 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 in envy. And um, I literally spun the globe uh, and put my finger on it, and I ended up on South Africa. And I was like, huh, okay, I know nothing about South African culture. Um, and, you know, th- th- by extension of like Middle East, you kind of know a little bit about what you could expect in Northern Africa because of the, the spread of Islam and what have you and, and its cultures um, uh, that, that, that have evolved from the faith. But South Africa, what's, what's in South Africa? And then at the same time, the World Cup was going to be in South Africa. And I was like, all right, you know what? This is, this, <laughs> this, this is, this is looking good. And uh, I ended up there in 2009. And then because I was there in 2009, I ended up uh, uh, actually working with the World Cup team that was doing the public health uh, work around Football for Hope, um, which is which is FIFA's like CSR project. And um, FIFA is all kinds of weird, but uh, <laughs> with their departments are really separate of each other. And so... 
the the um, leaders of that department really took me under their wings um, and uh, really showed me what the end result of public health can be, you know, in regards to field work, in regards to research, in regards just and using Cape Town as as the classroom, using specifically Kailicha Township as the classroom. Um, so I kind of after that I was like, all right, cool, you know, went back. And my last year at Hopkins, I, it's cool because you get to go from the undergraduate campus to the graduate campus, and now you're feeling like an adult, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I always thought that this is okay. I'm going to be a public health practitioner. That's just the natural evolution of it. And so even when I had the, you know, great honor of of being nominated by the university to to go abroad and to study in Europe um, through a scholarship. Uh, I still found myself going to, you know, East Africa. I ended up in Rwanda and doing more public health work, but this time around climate change and around soil erosion and learning more and more about, you know, agriculture. And um, so when I got kind of a call to come to California and move to California and, and start this other project, um, it was it was a tough decision. I was like, all right, cool. And b- part of my decision for going back was because at that time my sister ended up in Sierra Leone, and my parents were were having enough. Uh, no. Or just they're, they're having enough of this stuff. They were just like, look, one of you has to be back. Like they they saw um, they saw Sierra Leone and Rwanda as like the same thing, right? And um, so so I was like, all right, like I'll you know I just got called come to California all right like I'll I'll try California who, who knows I'll, I can always go back to go back and continue my work in, in East Africa and that's where you know coming to California and, and uh the next chapter of starting a biotech company which was as sporadic as it sounds really um but because of the political climate then evolving into the work that I do now. And um, one of the things that we were talking a little bit over lunch was as you, as Abe's meats continue, you do want to do more value-added meats and then also move into more uh, plant-based mm. or maybe plant-based in the wrong yeah. word, but more less meat, more plants sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we were talking a little bit about soil erosion and all the mm-hmm. agricultural um, worries around that. Can you talk a little bit about how that's impacted your thinking for the future of the business? Absolutely. I am... Uh, I am a meat company that doesn't want to be a meat company. <laughs> <laughs> I um, uh, personally myself, I mean, I used to be a vegetarian for a couple of years. Um, now I'm flexitarian, but um, and and this is why right now the focus on how we source is as important as our you know religious uh, observance. Um, and, and that's why regenerative agriculture is so important to us, um, particularly in this community, because we see the consumer base as, you know, crickets aren't kosher, um, you know, lab grown meat isn't, is kind of, it's got a big question mark over it for, for the, for this particular, you know, Jewish Muslim community, so the more orthodox you get, um, but for us, it's about helping this community become more flexitarian and beginning to understand the, the environmental impact of food at large. Um, and that doesn't just just mean meat, right? That means, I mean, even even soy and wheat and corn and what, what, what these types of crops do to our pastures and how that uh, affects the environment. Um, the thing about regenerative agriculture is that its basis is about growing uh, carbon soil. It's about making our soil stronger. So, you know, we have a big uh, focus right now on climate change and what climate change is doing, but soil and soil erosion, I would say, is equal to, if not even more, uh, concerning because soil has a lot of carbon in it. And if you use your land properly, uh, that carbon can stay within the soil and build good pasture. Um, and thus produce very good food at a very low carbon footprint. Or you can till and you can, you know, factory farm and industrialize the process, which we have over the past couple generations perfected. I mean, somehow, some way, we've managed to get that chicken from Brazil to Afghanistan at a lower price point, you know, that's, that's bonkers. Yeah. I mean that, that's that's incredible, but it's also just 
wrong in many ways. Yeah. Um, so now, like to go into regenerative agriculture, you know, meat has become synonymous with factory farming, and to to a large it should be like it's ninety nine percent of the industry is is factory farmed, one percent is regenerative. But can we, as consumers, use our purchasing power to make that 1%, 2%, 3%, and at the same time then begin to value that process and see it not just as, excuse me, as better meat, but as also just better food? Yeah. Mohammed, it's been a real pleasure having you join us. Um, <laughs> we we're out of time. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I keep, I'm keep going sorry. for another two hours. <laughs> course, yeah. um, that you've been listening to Why Food Podcast. You can find us uh, at, at heritageradionetwork.org. Email us whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. And will you tell us um, where oh, yeah. our, sorry, I forgot. our <laughs> listeners can find you online at Apes? Yeah, apesmeats.com, A-B-E-S-M-E-A-T-S.com. Uh, yeah, feel free to follow us and show us some love. Thanks. And I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. You can find me at my via my spice company at Burlap and Barrel, burlapandbarrel.com. And I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. You can always find me at, uh, at Chef Jenny Dorsey. And please uh, send us questions, thoughts, comments, um, nominations at Y Food at Yeah, Heritage we're booking Radio. guests for the summer season we starting are. in May. Wow. So, dun, dun, dun. so <laughs> send, send us all of your career-changing friends. And uh, thanks to Amanda for being an awesome sound engineer. And to Blind by the Red Crickets for our theme song. See you next week. That's why we ended up like that. All the sick things that we've been through. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.